0: Hey, It's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We're going to start with a little bit of theology. There's apparently some confusion about one of the Ten Commandments, especially the one that says, Thou shalt not kill, Exodus 20. In the Jewish, most Protestant, and Orthodox traditions, it's commandment number six. For Catholics and Lutherans, it's number five. And then there's the translation problem. Catholics aren't very specific. They say, you shall not kill. All the other major religions with roots in the Old Testament go with, you shall not murder. It's a difference. Whatever the case, the killing of another human being is generally looked upon as a bad thing to do, even if it's in self-defense. Killing is something that really should be avoided. Yet being the frail, imperfect creatures we are, murder does happen. And sadly, it happens everywhere, including in the world of music. You, you haven't heard some of these true crime stories? Well, sit back and have a listen. I call this show Murder Most Foul. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. I said, do you know where the wild roses grow? So sweet and scarlet and free. On the second day he came with a single That's Nick Cave doing a duet with, of all people, Kylie Minogue. It's from a 1996 album called Murder Ballads, and the song is Where the Wild Roses Grow. That's just one example of a rock song that deals with the subject of murder. We can go back 60 years for songs like that, tracks like Down by the River by Neil Young, Hey Joe from Jimi Hendrix, Tonight We Murder by Ministry, Killing in the Name of by Rage, goes on and on. But those are just songs. What about real killings involving real personalities in music? Welcome again, I'm Ellen Cross, and I've collected some stories of murder. Musicians and music business people are just like anyone else. They get mad or stoned or drunk and do dumb things. Or someone who's mad or stoned or drunk does something dumb to somebody else. Actions are motivated by jealousy or fear or revenge, anger, sex, power. Or someone just gets very unlucky and in the end someone ends up dead homicide. 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 i think that sets the tone it's a 1978 track from a punky new way back from the uk called 999 that's homicide our first story involves linda stein Back in the day, Linda used to be a teacher. Then she drifted into the underground music scene in New York and ended up for a time managing the Ramones. She was also married to Seymour Stein, the founder of Sire Records, a New York record label that signed everyone from the Ramones to the Talking Heads to the Tragically Hip to the Pretenders to Madonna. He ended up as a vice president at Warner Brothers Records eventually. Linda was very much part of the scene, hanging out at all the right clubs like CBGBs and getting in all the right gossip columns. But in the 1980s, she decided that she had had enough and became a real estate agent. And she did very, very well, selling houses and apartments and condos to people like Sting and Angelina Jolie and Steven Spielberg. In fact, if you've ever seen the Oliver Stone movie Wall Street, Linda was apparently the inspiration for the real estate agent that tries to sell Charlie Sheen a place. Linda made a lot of money in the real estate boom. But then on October the 30th of 2007, she was found dead in her Fifth Avenue home. She had been bludgeoned to death around her head and neck. Less than two weeks later, a suspect was in custody. Nativia Lowry, Linda's assistant, was arrested and charged with second degree murder. However, Nativia's family was not convinced. They say whatever confession the cops got was coerced and they put the blame on Mandy Stein, Linda's daughter. Mandy was actually the one who discovered Linda's body but let's go back to Nativia why did she apparently do it well because allegedly Linda kept yelling at her and blowing pot smoke in her face that confession is on tape too but again could be coerced and she did the deed with a yoga stick whatever that is here's the band that Linda used to manage and you have to think to yourself how many times did Linda sing along with this song The Ramones, former clients of Linda Stein, who was found murdered in her Fifth Avenue apartment on October 30th, 2007. Bertrand Cantat was a French rock star. He was the frontman for a band called Noir Désir, Black Desire. Back in the 90s, Bertrand was huge in France. He was all over the news with his left-wing views about Iraq and globalization and the environment. But then in July 2003, he was in a hotel room with his girlfriend, a French actress named Marie Trignon and things went horribly, horribly wrong. There was an argument over infidelity. She had apparently received a love text from her ex-husband, and that's when Bertrand apparently hit her 19 times, knocking her unconscious. Then he tucked her into bed. She suffered irreversible brain damage, went into a coma, and died on August 1st of 2003. Now this caused a giant outcry in France to the point where an arsonist burned down the guy's house. In March of 2004, Cantat was found guilty and sentenced to eight years in a Lithuanian prison for manslaughter. Now, chances are you've never heard of Bertrand and Noir Désir, so let me play you something. This is from 2001. It's an album called Des Visages des Figures, or The Face of Figures. This was a major hit called Le Vent nous Portera. French band Noir Désir, with Levant New Portera, which translates as "The Wind Will Carry Us." By the way, Bertrand Cantat was released early from jail. He got out on October the seventeenth of two thousand and seven, serving about three and a half years for the manslaughter of his actress girlfriend. Back in a second with a story of another murder most foul. At first, it was just a tragic beach accident while on vacation, but later the allegations turned to something much more sinister the accusations of murder surrounding the death of british singer Kirsty mccall welcome back i'm ellen cross and this show is all about instances of murder in new rock steve Lillywhite is a very famous record producer he worked on about half of all the albums u2 has ever done he's also worked with morrissey and the pogues and simple minds and talking heads and dave matthews and chris cornell and tons of others Steve used to be married to an English singer-songwriter named Kirsty McCall, who began having hit records in the UK in 1979. She's the female voice that you hear on the Pogue song, Fairytale of New York, you know, the one that you hear around Christmas all the time. She recorded with Johnny Marr of the Smiths, and Kirsty was known to hang around YouTube recording sessions offering input and advice. A couple of her records were produced by Steve. She also wrote a couple of songs for Bette Midler and had one of her songs adapted as a theme for a BBC TV show. In December of 2000, she and her new partner, a guy named James Knight, took Kirstie's sons to Cozumel, Mexico. They were going for a holiday. Kirstie loved scuba diving, and she wanted to show her boys how it was done. I mean, Cozumel, what a great place to go snorkeling and scubaing. On December the 18th, she and the boys were diving in an area where watercraft, any kind of boats, were strictly prohibited. But just as they were surfacing from a deep dive, a speedboat tore through the area right on top of Kirsty and her son Jamie. Now, Kirsty was able to see the boat coming and push Jamie out of the way, but as she did, the boat hit her, killing her instantly. And This is where it gets interesting. The boat was owned by a Mexican millionaire who made all his money in supermarkets. His name is Guillermo González Nova. Although he wasn't at the helm of the boat at the time of the accident, he and his family were on board. Driving the boat was, apparently, an employee named Jose Senyam, although there are a number of eyewitnesses that dispute that. Witnesses say that the boat was going much faster than what had been claimed. It was certainly moving faster than the mere one knot that Senyam had said. He was arrested and found guilty of something known under Mexican law as culpable homicide. The sentence was two years and ten months. However, the law also said that he could avoid jail time if he simply paid a fine and that fine was about 90 us dollars he was also ordered to pay restitution to kirsty's family but that restitution was based on his salary the total came to just over 2100 dollars. meanwhile there were whispers that senyam yeah, got a big payoff from someone for taking the fall Kirsty's family created something called the Justice for Kirsty campaign and began pressuring the Mexican authorities to do something. They've made applications to human rights councils. A judge in the case was found to have made mistakes in his handling of the situation. And you too has pushed for the government to get to the bottom of what happened. So far, though, nothing. Mexican authorities have not been helpful at all. Was this a horrible accident? Or was it manslaughter? We may never know. Kirsty McCall and a major alt-rock hit for her in 1985. It's her cover of Billy Bragg's A New England. If you're interested in the details behind Kirsty's death, there's a BBC documentary called Who Killed Kirsty McCall. And there's a book called Sun on the Water, the brilliant life and tragic death of Kirsty McCall by her sister, Jean. Next is the story of the death of Johnny Thunders. Johnny was one of the original New York punk rockers of the 1970s. He began as a member of the New York Dolls before creating a band called the Heartbreakers and going solo. He was an inspired guitarist. A lot of famous people say his style and attitude was extremely influential. But Johnny was also a drinker and a junkie. Heroin was his thing. But he did manage to hold his career together despite this need to be strung out much of the time. But on April 23, 1991, Johnny was found dead in New Orleans in room 37 of a place called St. Peter House. The coroner ruled it a drug overdose, but a lot of people believed and still believe otherwise. Steve Klassen was a guitar player in Johnny's band. He said that in his search for drugs, Johnny had become involved with an ugly bunch of locals who wanted his supply of methadone, which he had been taking to get off the smack. To rip him off, they drugged him with LSD, then they stole his stash, and then as he was lying there all stoned, they murdered him. The evidence for this is decent too, because his room was found to be ransacked and all his valuables, his cash, his passport, his clothes, they were all gone. And then there was the matter of Johnny's body. When it was found, it was in a weird fetal position stuffed underneath the coffee table. Rigor mortis had already set in. An autopsy was ordered, and yes, he had drugs in his system, but not in fatal amounts. They did find, though, that he was suffering from advanced leukemia, something that no one had known. The family asked the New Orleans cops to investigate again and again, but they just weren't interested. Some claim that the original police report is missing and that the coroner had a rep for falsifying autopsy results. So was Johnny Thunders the victim of a drug overdose complicated by leukemia? Or was he killed by a New Orleans drug gang? We might never know. (laughs) News Johnny with the New York Dolls a personality crisis and you're a prima ballerina on a spring afternoon <laughs> to the personality crisis you got it while it was... the New York Dolls featuring guitarist Johnny Thunders who may or may not have been murdered in New Orleans in April of 1991 Two more murder stories to go. One remains unsolved, while the other was a cold case that took 11 years to crack. This show is called Murder Most Foul. We're going through instances of unnatural deaths from the world of New Rock. Have you ever heard of Mia Zapata? If you're into hardcore or the riot girl scene of the early 1990s, you may have. She was in a band called The Gits. She's considered to be a big influence on a lot of the women attached to and inspired by this scene. On July seventh, 1993, Mia left a bar called the Comet Tavern in downtown Seattle. It was about one in the morning. She went to a friend's place down the street and stayed for about an hour, and then she told her that she was going home. She put on her headphones, turned up her Walkman, and headed out. Sometime in the next 60 minutes, she was beaten, raped, and murdered. She had been strangled with a cord of her hoodie. A scream was heard at around three, and then her body was found at about 320 on the 100 block of 24th Avenue South. The cops think that because she was listening to music on headphones at the time, she didn't hear it coming. So who did it? Well, that was the mystery. Mia was found on her back with her arms spread out Christ-like with her ankles crossed. Was this a ritualistic serial killing, or was it just a rape and murder? Several leads were followed up, but there was nothing. The trail was stone cold and it stayed that way for almost 11 years. But at least someone had the presence of mind to save a sample of saliva that had been found around Mia's mouth. Maybe one day they could do something called DNA testing. Maybe. The problem was that in 1993 the technology for extracting the necessary information from DNA wasn't available yet. And even if it was, there was no way to find a match with the murderer. Bottom line is that everything just lies dormant for over a decade. Jesus Mesquilla was a real Tony Montana kind of guy, one of the criminals shipped out of Cuba during the Mariel boatlift in 1980. That's when Fidel Castro made room in his prisons by putting about 2,000 really bad people on boats and shoving them towards Florida. Mesquilla was an ugly dude. He had a long criminal record in Cuba, and Castro was only too happy to get rid of him. Once he got to the States, he compiled a list of domestic abuse charges. Every single woman he ever dated and the woman he married filed reports against him. He became a drifter floating between Palm Springs, Florida and the West Coast. And here's the kicker. In 1993, Meskia was living in Seattle, about three blocks from where Mia Zapata's body was found. Cops knew about the guy too. There was an indecent exposure charge and a traffic ticket, but there was nothing that linked him to the murder. By 2002, Mesquia was back in Florida, working out of Marathon in the Florida Keys as a fisherman. And after yet another domestic abuse charge, a DNA sample was taken from him. By this time, all kinds of important information could be extracted from any kind of body fluid or residue. There was also an international database that allowed law enforcement to follow up on cold cases by comparing DNA samples. During a routine check, Mesquia came up as a match with that saliva sample that had been so carefully stored by the seattle police in january of 2003 he was charged with the murder of mia zapata and on march 24 2004 he was sentenced to 37 years in prison for first degree murder he maintains his innocence but he can't explain that dna evidence his sentence was overturned once in a variety of technicalities including the notion that the presence of his saliva didn't prove that he murdered mia but in 2009 he was resentenced to those 37 years. Let's go back and hear Mia sing. This is from 1994 and an album called Enter the Conquering Chicken. To um, to all of my the Gits, featuring Mia Zapata. That's called The Drinking Song. Her murder was solved 11 years after it happened by the Seattle Cold Case Squad. I have one final story, and this is a case that will never be solved. It's the murder of Nancy Spungen. And this is probably the most infamous murder in all of music. Nancy was the girlfriend of ex-sex pistol Sid Vicious. She was found dead under the bathroom sink of room 100 of the Chelsea Hotel in New York on the morning of October the 12th of 1978. She had been stabbed in the stomach by a big knife. A knife owned by Sid. It was an ugly wound. She must have taken hours to die. Now Sid claimed to know nothing about this and many people say he was telling the truth. He had taken 20 pills earlier in the morning and it passed out completely, even though there was something of a party going on in the room and there were people coming and going all night. Sid passed out at around 3 and he didn't get off that bed until nine thirty in the morning, but by then of course Nancy was dead. Still Sid was charged with her murder. But he died of an overdose on February the 2nd, 1979, while still awaiting trial. The New York cops have always been satisfied that Sid was the murderer. He got stoned, she got stoned, there was a fight, he stabbed her, he passed out, she died, the end. There are, however, a lot of people who say that's crap. There have been a number of private investigations, and a number of different conclusions have been reached. So if it wasn't Sid, who was it? The favorite suspect by most is a New York actor and drug dealer who went by the name Rockets Red Glare. He was a hanger on with Sid and Nancy, often supplying them with drugs. Here's the preferred theory. Again, just allegations. At around 1.30 in the morning of October the 12th, Nancy called Rockets and asked him to bring some drugs. He arrived somewhere after three and stayed until about five. Now remember, Sid is apparently completely unconscious at this point. The autopsy on Nancy suggested that she died between five and nine a.m. The police report also says that a large amount of money was missing from the room, maybe as much as $20,000. Rockets was spotted at the hotel at around four. There were two or three people who confirmed seeing him. There's even a conspiracy theory that says Rockets sold Sid's mum a super potent form of heroin, on February 1st, 1979, knowing full well that Sid would take it, OD, and die. But we'll leave that conspiracy for another time. For the cops, blaming Sid was easy. And when he died, well, case closed. Our job is done here. Rocket's red glare continued to be a junkie, a dealer, and an actor before he died of liver failure resulting from hep C in 2001. His real name was Michael Mora, by the way. He can be seen playing a taxi driver in the movie Desperately Seeking Susan. He was also in the Eric Bogosian film Talk Radio. He plays himself in the 1996 movie Basquiat. And if you remember the HBO series Oz, he played a barber in a 1999 episode. And what of poor Sid? Well, he will forevermore be labeled the murderer of his girlfriend. But we'll never ever really know, will we? On that note, here's a statement from the punk rock band The Exploited. This is called, Sid Vicious Was Innocent. From Scotland, The Exploited from 1982 with Sid Vicious Was Innocent. Murder is a foul, foul thing. Let's hope we don't have to deal with more stories like the ones we've just heard. You'll notice that I did leave out the whole Kurt Cobain was murdered thing. That's very complicated, very detailed, so we'll just leave that for another time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.